Hey, Tourpreneurs, it's Mitch Bach. And just a quick note before we begin today's episode, Tourpreneur is currently sponsored by Google. We're thankful for their support of our community, and we are offering with them a completely free course helping you unlock the power and potential of Google's Things to Do program, which is specifically helping tour operators add their tours to Google in new ways that gives you new exposure and more direct bookings. To learn more, go to tourpreneur.com slash Google. And as always, show notes, more resources, links to our newsletter, our business coaching community, and so much more are available on tourpreneur.com. Now to the episode. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Tourpreneur. I am Mitch Bach, and we are back for part two of my interview with Akilah McConnell of Unexpected Atlanta. Akilah is one of the most creative and ambitious tour operators that I know, and in this second part of our interview, she continues to share pure gold with our community. It may actually sound like a little bit of a throwback of an episode because we're going to start by talking about her success in virtual tours and food boxes. Even though those were often something played around with during the pandemic, Akila has turned those channels into 75% of her business in the case of virtual tours and shipped over 20,000 experience boxes last year. She is a firm believer that you should always be pivoting, finding gaps in the market, seizing the first mover advantage, as she calls it in our last episode, and always evolving as a business. And so in this episode, we are going to continue to talk everything from profit margins to virtual tours to working in the corporate market to food boxes, diversity, and everything in between, especially looking at the way in which she rebranded her company and has found certain ways of seizing what she calls the zone of genius of herself, of her team, to create a company that is truly special and also successful. So without further ado, here is part two of my interview with Akila. And we talked for so long that we couldn't even fit everything into this episode. And so for Tourpreneur Plus members, you will receive an extra 35 minutes of discussion on guide training and software that she recommends and everything else. So make sure you check out Tourpreneur Plus on tourpreneur.com. And here's Akila. I want to switch into, in, into the, the topic of 2020. otherwise known as the COVID-19 pandemic. I see three things that happened in your business. One, a shift to virtual, a shift also to food tour boxes or experience boxes, and three, a rebrand of your business, maybe as a result of those three, of those first two. And so could we start with your foray into the virtual world and what that has meant for your business and what your strategy has been, what your focus has been, what, you, what you've thought about that adventure? Um, virtual is amazing. So our virtual business is currently the biggest part of our business. Um, I'm, sorry. I'm sorry, can you say that again? <laughs> yeah, our, our virtual business is the biggest part of our business. Um, and we actually 
to just give you a really quick like uh, look at this. So right now our virtual business is about 70% of our total revenue. And um, we have grown 10X since pre-pandemic, um, largely because of our virtual business. Uh, so a little bit about what we do on the virtual side, and this is really where that creativity and that first mover advantage is so huge, is, um, you know, right out of the gate, I mean, within a week after the pandemic hit, we said, well, we need to find a way to keep our our guides all employed. And um, we moved into the virtual space, kind of doing the same thing that we were already doing, which is telling stories that we believe matter um, and really focusing on corporate entities. Um, we found it to be difficult to sell to individuals in the virtual space, but every company was going remote. So we were like, well, this is an obvious, you know, like just really easy market. Did you, um, did you try B2C sales and it just quickly was harder than you thought? Yeah, we tried B2C sales for about, uh, I would say maybe three months. And uh, we just, it was hard to get the B2C sales uh, and just honestly not worth it. Um, it was way better shifting into B2B. And so we just kind of, and this is, you know, again, where we're not, worried about killing our babies <laughs> you know mm -hmm. we build things and we're like this isn't working this isn't making money and it goes to the graveyard um and so <laughs> we had we had created some b2c products um and they it just didn't work like we didn't feel like we were making sufficient money so we just sent them to our graveyard no no worries um so we really focus on b2b and our focus is um you know, remote team building. Uh, I think our big differentiator and the reason why we are so successful is the same reason why we are successful with our in-person tours is that we really create these super engaging events that people can't get enough of. Um, and so right now, I mean, in the past two years, we've become... Uh, one of the primary suppliers for Google's DEI-focused events, for um, Intel, for IBM, uh, for the Gates Foundation. Um, you know, so all these huge companies that you can think of, as well as many companies that you probably don't know, um, were providing both fun team building as well as um, DEI-focused remote team building events for them. And we see this area as one that is only going to continue to grow um, as more and more companies are finding that they have to be remote, um, that it is too, um, that they are losing out on very good personnel because they're telling companies, you know, telling people they have to go back into the office. So just to be clear, DEI is diversity, equity, and inclusion. Correct. This is uh, a field that has existed, obviously, before the pandemic, but it probably is fair to say it exploded during the pandemic. 
there were key events, especially in the United States, that drew a very um, focused laser attention on that space. And suddenly there were a lot of initiatives, there were a lot of uh, budgets that were allocated to that very, very, very quickly in a, in a very different way than uh, might be allocated to incentive trips, virtual incentive trips or virtual uh, team building exercises. And so did you see that as an opportunity to kind of reimagine what a virtual tour experience looks like, but in, in a different context, a different corporate team, a different budget, a different way of thinking about what a virtual tourism experience was? Yeah. And I mean, I think this is uh, maybe a little bit about also our brand is that our ethos has, I mean, as you can tell, as we've been talking, our ethos has always been to tell stories associated with, um, you know, disenfranchised minority and uh, stories that are not usually told. So we were doing this in person and, you know, it, it's amazing to me to see the evolution because now I've been in business for seven years. Um, when we started, um, and I would tell people like, look, we're doing these civil rights focused tours. People were like, I, I don't get it. Like, why are you going to do these? Like, what is the purpose? Why? Like, nobody wants these blah, 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 blah. And now, I mean, people are banging on our door trying to get onto our experience. So absolutely, um, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement uh, has made it, played a huge role in this. But I also hope, and maybe this is some naivety here, um, that it is as generations are growing and we are seeing Gen Z entering the market. Um, Gen Z in particular is very interested in a focus on diversity. This is very important to Gen Z in picking a corporate environment. And so companies are responding. And this is again, you know, why I believe that there is no such thing as pivoting for an entrepreneur. It is just finding the next space um, and the next evolution of business. Uh, and so when we moved into virtual, actually the first three products that we built out when our team got together, we said, product number one that we're gonna build is we're gonna build a street art product that is gonna be kind of fun, easy, lightweight for people to enjoy. Product number two is going to be Juneteenth. This is, again, three years ago when a lot of people didn't know what Juneteenth was. Juneteenth had not yet been made a federal holiday. And we were having to explain to our customers what Juneteenth was. Um, we still got a lot of interest in Juneteenth. Um, Coca-Cola was one of the first companies who said, hey, like we really need a Juneteenth virtual experience. And um, we have continued to develop that Juneteenth experience. Uh, this year, we ran 93 Juneteenth virtual events in one and a half weeks. Um, we had three teams running it. And uh, 
we were literally running it every hour uh, with like half hour breaks among the three teams. And we, despite that, because we actually tripled, because last year we sold 30 and I was like, 90, we're never going to fill this. This is plenty. Despite, you know, doing three X, we ran out of slots. And so next year, I think we're probably going to sell more like 180 or maybe 270 Juneteenth events in a week and a half. Um, So it's a massive market um, that, again, you know, that first mover advantage is huge because we've been doing this. And, you know, right now we're the leader in Juneteenth events, um, same thing with Pride, you know, Pride, we're like, we've been doing this, uh, Black History Month. I mean, like, so these are just events that companies just come to us because they know that we have them. And we're working on building um, new DEI events. Like, I don't know if you can see behind me, I've got my like, stuff on you know his hide, hide, yeah. it, hide it people are going to be zooming into the video yeah. well, be up to next yeah so i mean next is uh hispanic heritage month and and latinx so um yeah so there's always something else that we're we're working on um in this space it's a testament to your confidence in the prime mover advantage that you are incredibly generous in even sharing it right now because you're saying we're doing this and we're doing it because we we placed a vet, but you also had a you had a vision. You had a bet and a vision. In other words, the success came from a risk. And the risk was doing a Juneteenth event before every single American news outlet was talking about Juneteenth. And you had that first believer, which happened to be Coca-Cola, which helps definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, absolutely. But you, and, and that's fine. I mean, of course, you've got to have that believer and, and you were lucky to have that. But that luck came because you had that vision first and you weren't afraid to be different than the way everybody else was running and thinking about their virtual tours. Yeah. And I, I you know, I think this is, you know, and obviously you don't have to do DEI events. Um, you might see the vision is axe throwing and you know physical physical uh d-e-i-a yeah exactly i mean there's always something out there that needs to be there's a gap that needs to be filled and um only you know what your team's passion is in filling that gap but looking for those gaps is so critical and um you know now we're three years ahead of the game, right? And we're seeing companies now coming and saying, oh, we're going to build DI events. And we're, and I'm like, look, like, this is really hard. I mean, number one, we've been doing this, I mean, seven years now, we've been building DI events in the in-person space, and now three years in the virtual space. Um, so it's that being the first one, taking that risk, um, believing in yourself, believing in your team, and then being willing to throw away anything that just doesn't work. To me, that's just a, a template to a successful business. And it's one that, yes, you have to be a little bit courageous and you have to be willing to take risks. Uh, but you also wake up in the morning and you know that your business is going to be fun and a challenge to work in. I think when someone visits your website, it's a masterclass in 
website design. It's oh, incredibly it's incredibly appealing. I've actually also watched it over the years develop and evolve. And one of the things that still is on there and still is prominent, which I'm guessing means it's still active in your life is uh, food tour boxes or experience yeah. boxes. Since mm-hmm. I think some of your boxes actually don't involve a terrible amount of food. And so that was something that came on hot and heavy at the beginning of the pandemic. It isn't necessarily something that shows up in our community feed every day, but I'm wondering what your experience has been with that and what your outlook is for it. Yeah, so I I mean, so as part of our virtual experiences, we sell experience boxes. Uh, we sell a lot of boxes. We actually have a warehouse now where uh, we um, build and sell boxes. Um, I think last year we sold something like 20,000 boxes or something like that. Uh, it's a lot of boxes. Uh, there's a, a, a steady stream of boxes entering and leaving the warehouse. I'm just glad it's not in your house. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, and it started at my house, actually. So our first, our first build space was, I have a little guest bedroom that is over here. And we cleared out the guest bedroom and we were building it. Um, and, uh, we were there until the very moment where I was like, we have no space. There are U-line boxes coming every day to my house, um, giant boxes of crinkle paper. Like we can no longer do this. And so, um, this is affecting my marriage. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it truly was. My poor husband, like my kids were like constantly like, mom, there's a box for you. I was like, I know. Um, And so, you know, so we moved into the warehouse space, which has been really huge. But, you know, we waited until the very last moment in order to do that. Um, But uh, we also sell on Amazon. um, So that's another kind of uh, revenue source uh, that we do because we already have the boxes, we have the warehouse space. Um, And again, I was looking for gaps. So we looked in Amazon and we were like, look, there's a huge gap here where there are um, no boxes, no gift boxes focused on female empowerment. Um, There's a whole lot of boxes focused on spa stuff for women. But if you are, excuse my language here, but if you are a badass woman, maybe you don't want to do your nails, you know, maybe you really want, you know, a mug that you want to become a Supreme Court justice, you want to be a Supreme Court justice, or, you know, you want to rock the world with your company, you know, Um, for us, we, we looked at it, and we're like, you know, we're a women owned business. Um, You know, we've got uh, 11 women and one man on our team and our man proudly states that he is a feminist and so for all of us we were like look like why he knows why? his audience yeah i mean I, and he's he's amazing so. I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. <laughs> but um but you know for all of us we're like look like here's a gap we can fill this gap um and you know this is again like going back to our very early part of our discussion um you know i like the very first thing that i did was i hired an attorney to help us um trademark the name unexpected gifts because i wanted this to be something where 
um, we could spin off. Um, you know, the, the other aspect that I think about associated with entrepreneurship is yes, you want to take risks. Yes. You want to build something amazing, but you also have to think about what is your long-term goal and are you planning on exiting? Um, because I don't want to be doing this when I'm 80 years old or 70 years old, or maybe even 60 years old, you know, at some point I want to figure out the exit and, um, you know, I want to create as, you know, as many streams in the business that make sense, that will be valuable streams that we could sell. And it made sense to me. I was like, look, like, this is just a smart business move where we've, again, identified a gap, first mover in it. Um, and so that's kind of like a nice little side business that we've got going. Uh, that is a very easy lift on our part because we're already building boxes and we just ship them out to Amazon and so So you're talking about your brand, Unexpected Gifts, Unexpected Atlanta, but you started out as Atlanta Food Tours. Yeah, Atlanta Food Walks, actually. Yeah. Atlanta Food Walks. Yeah. What was your experience or your journey in rebranding yourself and why? Um, so we rebranded actually even pre-pandemic. Um, so, um, you know, I, uh, originally when I started the company, you know, I had a lot of people tell me, well, you want to get a really great SEO name, um, you know, something that people are going to search for, et cetera. And so Atlanta food walks, you know, Atlanta food tours wasn't available Atlanta food walks that made sense. I was like, okay, great. Um, and the problem with a really great SEO name is that it is a really forgettable name. Um, and so about a year and a half in, we were creating these amazing experiences, but we saw that our food tour reviews were getting mixed with other companies' food tour reviews on TripAdvisor because people literally could not differentiate our name from others. Um, and I see this happen all the time. If you are, you know, Timbuktu food tour and somebody else's food tour Timbuktu and somebody else's food walk Timbuktu, um, pe people don't know. It's just, it's just too hard. Uh, and so we actually hired a uh, brand uh, advisor, which is again, like, you know, one of those things where yes, you gotta spend some money, but it was very worth it. Um, and he um, helped us kind of think about what, was important to us. And we did a number of exercises associated with our brand. Um, by the way, if you have ever, are ever looking for branding, um, this is not the advisor that we use, but as a free resource, I highly, highly recommend um, Pia Silva, P-I-A, and then her last name is S-I-L-V-A. Um, she has both blogs, um, uh, uh, Forbes articles, and podcasts, as well as like YouTube videos all about branding. Um, you can buy her book and basically do all the stuff that I'm talking about right now. You can do it DIY yourself uh, with her information. Um, so highly recommend Pia Silva. But, um, and her company name is Badass Your Brand. Um, and um, so when we were doing this brand research, and it's really kind of like 
sitting in a room with your people and thinking about yourself, thinking about why you're successful, what makes you great, what, um, why do people keep coming to you? Um, the word that kept on coming up over and over and over again was unexpected. Uh, we were looking at our TripAdvisor reviews and Google reviews and, uh, you know, just talking to the guides and people said on almost every tour, somebody would say, this was totally unexpected. I did not expect this. Um, I thought I was coming in for this and this just blew my expectations out of the water. And um, it just felt like a lovely part of who we are and our ethos. And unexpected can be a bad thing, you know, like, especially when you're talking about a food tour, you can be like, oh, unexpected food tours. Well, we're going to be eating chicken feet, you know? Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, so unexpected can be a bad thing, but we felt like it fit into our ethos because our goal has always been to take the discomfort and make people comfortable with it. And we were like, well, yes, this is what we're doing. You know, we truly are unexpected. You come into this experience and we get people who like walk away feeling like they're friends, like they've, they've built this community. Um, so it just, you know, it, it just fit our ethos and it's, uh, we were able to get all of the domain names associated with it. Um, and then we also uh, trademarked it as well, um, which is, you know, really huge um, because you want to be able to trademark mark your name uh, so that you can protect it and other people can't use it. So that's absolutely incredible. It, it really continues our theme of this entire discussion, which is of taking that risk to rebrand. I mean, were you nervous at all? The idea that you would lose your SEO, your domain name, the people that kind of already knew you, it was. Yeah, so we did it in a slow roll. Um, and I would recommend this if you're rebranding. Um, you know, we didn't do it all at one time. I mean, what we did was it took us about a year and a half to fully deprecate all of our old things. Um, and, uh, we, you can still find the term Atlanta food walks like it within our unexpected Atlanta, um, site. Uh, but I mean, basically we, we started by, adding a new email address. And then we added an umbrella website that had the Atlanta Food Walks website. Then over time, we deprecated the Atlanta Food Walks website so that it reverted back to unexpected Atlanta. Um, you know, we changed our logos. Um, yeah, we did this, at, like I said, I mean, just a year and a half um, to really do this. I don't think we lost any customers. I don't think anybody, by the time it was done, it was just like, oh, okay, like they've been doing this for so long. I get it. Like they're, yes, they used to be Atlanta Food Walks. Now they're unexpected Atlanta. No big deal. Did you have any worries with OTAs and reviews and TripAdvisor and kind of listings and everything else? No, again, we did all of that as a slow roll. Like everything that we did, we did it as a slow roll. And, um, you know, and we, and the other thing that was really nice about it is we, 
our logos did not significantly change. We kept all of our brand colors um, and we kept our general look of our logos. So it still felt very similar. Um, and it, it just was kind of like a, a really easy shift over. So I'm slightly worried that people are going to hear your story and think, well, I'm very different. I'm small. I'm just me or me and a guide or me and my wife and my husband. And I'm wondering if you look back at kind of how you started and you look at a lot of new businesses, and I know you work with a lot of new businesses and just even, even, even in an occasional way, just giving them so much advice, they sometimes get very excited and very hopeful by the idea of growth and scale. And I'm wondering if you have any advice and pitfalls to avoid in thinking about those terms and what they want out of their business? Uh, that's such a great question. I love that question. Um, so I started just with me in 2015. And, um, and for the first year, it was just me. I, uh, and then I hired a, um, two part-time guides. Um, and then the next, and then six months later, I hired a few more part-time guides. Uh, but really for the first three years of the business, I was doing all the back office myself. I did not have any back office personnel. Um, and I think the same rule applies. Um, in that whether you are, you know, huge or whether you're medium or whether you're small, I think it is so important that when you're looking at your business, you're identifying the gaps and making sure that you are filling that gap. Um, if it's just you, okay, and you are, you are writing your scripts and you're performing your scripts and you're, you know, giving the tours and you're answering the phones and you're doing everything, then that's awesome. And then the moment that you have the tiniest bit of money, extra money, you can say, okay, wait a second. Which of these things do I really suck at where I need to fill that gap? Then you fill that gap first. And, you know, again, this is what I was saying in that I see myself as my zone of genius is writing. I think my zone of excellence or maybe my zone of competence is performing. And so the first thing I hired were performers because I, I knew that like I can fill my zone of genius. Um, so I look at scale and growth as something that isn't something that happens all at once. Um, and I see this a lot, actually, even on the tourpreneur page, people will be like, oh, I've got some money right now. I'm going to throw it into social media. I still don't have a social media person. Um, you know, I, I don't because I don't, we don't make a ton of money through social media. We, you know, our primary marketing is through SEO instead. Um, which is probably like a whole different conversation. Like we could talk an hour and a half about SEO because uh, I love SEO. Okay, I think just, 
how much did you block off for time there? Um, I love SEO. But anyway, the, the point on this is I would say um, really take growth and scale slowly. You don't need to hire. The moment that you have a tiny bit of money, just because X, Y, and Z out there is hiring a social media person, you might be phenomenal at social media, then why would you be giving that away? Um, hire for the places where it is not in your zone of genius. Figure out what your zone of genius is and hire for the places where you're sitting in your zone of competence or your zone of excellence. Maybe for you, the thing you really suck at is accounting. And the very per first person you need to hire is an accountant. And that is going to be the best uh, method to grow your business. Well, I do remember talking to you when I met you in Atlanta and you made a very big point that an operator needs to know what they want out of this business, what their exit strategy is, where mm -hmm. they're going, what their goal is for what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's so important. I, um, if your goal is, I'm just doing this for fun. Well, that's great, but then that's a hobby. Um, and, and I know a lot of people, I know a lot of tour operators who they're doing this for fun. They are having a great time and that's awesome. It's like selling stuff on Etsy. Um, you know, it's, it's a hobby. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're not, it's not your primary source of income. You're just kind of doing this on the side. And in that case, forget everything that I just said, you know, I mean, <laughs> because, yeah, because none of it matters to you. So, you know, going in and saying, okay, am I creating a business that is going to be my primary source of income, as well as the primary source of income for employees? Or am I creating a hobby where this is just, I'm just making a little bit of extra money. I went into the business in 2015, knowing that this was going to be a business. Um, I wanted this to be my primary source of income for me as well as for my guides. Um, and I also went into it knowing that at some point I wanted to exit. And this is another decision that you had to make um, because as you're thinking about your strategy, especially if you've been an operator for like say three, three years or longer and you know how much revenue you're normally making, What's your what's your end goal? Are you going to be doing this until you're 90? I hope not, because I can't imagine a 90 year old tour guide. Although I did see that National Park Service has a 94 year old tour guide. So I was I mean, going to say there's a whole article on. Her. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, um, so you could be doing this when you're 90. That could be a choice. A choice could be that when you're 65, you retire and you're like, you know what? I had a good run. I'm going to shut down my accounts and I'm done. And I've seen a lot of people do that. I've seen people say, you know what? I, my goal is, you know, when I'm, when I'm sick of this, I'm going to maybe sell this for a couple of thousand bucks to somebody in my area who can continue it if they want to, if they don't want to, who cares? Uh, or you can say, well, you know, I want to make some serious money off of this. I want to make enough to at least partially fund a retirement. Then in that case, you've got a whole different set of strategies. Um, and like, this is really about you and your financial plan. And um, I spend 
um, you know, on an annual basis, I create an annual business plan. And then I revisit that annual business plan at the end of every quarter as well to see where we are in meeting our goals. So that and and I also have a five-year plan. And at the end of the five years, I'm like, okay, wait, have we have we met these goals? Where do we need to reassess? Um, because otherwise, I feel like sometimes people spin their wheels. And I do think um, it's it's hard if you don't know exactly what you want. And what I would love to see, you know, if if I were planning arrival. Um, what I would love to see Arrival do is have some of these more difficult conversations. Um, these are hard, hard questions. Um, and they're questions that a lot of people don't like to talk about because it relates to money. Um, but I think it's questions that are truly important um, that matter because it's it makes a big difference in whether your plan is to be a solopreneur or whether at some point you want to build a team and scale. Well, I think also not only are they difficult, but they're far away. And so it's easy to forget about them uh, because you're so busy working in the immediate term. And I know Peter, Sir, Peter Syme and all of us at Tourpreneur love to talk about avoiding being a busy fool. You've got more bookings coming in. You're, you've never been busier. And yet, where are the profits? Yeah. Where are the kinds of profits that allow you to be a business, not only at scale, but to be a business that is paying for itself on the widest, on the widest level, on the most zoomed out level of what you're doing as a business, investing in the future of growth and not just all right, we finished the year and I didn't lose money doing what I did. And I'm wondering, did you make any, did you make any mistakes with the pricing of your tour? Did you learn any lessons along your way of how to understand these different levels of thinking about money, which is the tour price, which is so granular and, and immediate, and then also understanding what your costs are and what your profits want to be over the kind of longer and wider term? Um, so I think I mentioned very early on that I have an accounting degree. And so this is where <laughs> oh, no, the... you've never made a mistake. Yeah. So I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, the great thing about having an accounting degree is that uh, I love numbers and I love spreadsheets. So I have a lot of spreadsheets and, you know, we're constantly calculating on every tour, uh, you know, what's our margins. Um, Profitability is everything. Uh, you you cannot focus on pure revenue alone. Um, and as an industry, we've got to talk more about profit margins. Um, I mean, uh, so I'll I'll be the first. I will I will tell you guys if you are a, a tour company, I, I think in my humble opinion, um, you really need to have at least a five to 10% net profit at your end of year, depending on your size. Um, if you, and, and by net, I mean, this is after you pay yourself, pay yourself a salary, people. Like, don't go into this and be like, oh, I'm just gonna have like whatever the drippings are at the end. Day one, you pay yourself a salary. You figure out what your salary is and you pay yourself a salary. And if you're not able to pay yourself a salary, then you have got to reduce your costs in your business. So this is all to say, 
that, you know, profitability is a huge goal of mine. Um, I, I pay myself, I give myself uh, salary bumps every year. Uh, we maintain, even, even during the pandemic, we maintained our five to 10% net profit um, percentage. Um, but uh, mistakes, yeah, I make those all the time. <laughs> I mean, did you hear me talk about the graveyard? We're constantly throwing stuff out. Um, and one of my favorite people who you should absolutely have on a entrepreneur podcast because she is just a total rock star is Avital Unger um, with Avital Tours. And every time I see Avital, she's like, raise your prices. Literally, her first piece of advice to me every single time is raise your prices. Um, and it's really good advice because we get so... Um, into what we're doing and we have these self-esteem issues like will people like me even if I raise my price and I swear to you we are literally paying $800 for you know a piece of metal that we carry around with some microchips in it and nobody bats an eye. I mean, Tesla's right now I mean people aren't even bargaining they're going in and dropping like a hundred thousand bucks on a car, raise your prices, raise your prices. Don't be worried. Raise your prices. It's a lot of, there's <laughs> a lot of, uh, this is incredible. I mean, amen. I want to shout, I want to shout all sorts of things right now. There's a lot of operators who are terrified of that because they're listed on OTAs that are filtering or sorting by prices and they're worried they're going to lose bookings in the fight for a, the customer that is booking the lowest. And so, you know, we, we, we do a lot of education, a lot of discussion in our individual coaching with operators on pricing for value. And I'm wondering what that means to you. In other words, how do you, justify that what you're doing is worth this elevated price. So not only just getting over the internal psychological hurdle of knowing your worth, but also making sure that a customer understands that what they're paying for is worth this money. Um, well, this goes back to storytelling, right? So you're not just storytelling on your tours, you're storytelling in sales as well. Um, so your marketing and your sales and your website needs to be telling the story of the value of, of your enterprise, of your products. And um, there are going to be some people who come back and they're like, this is too expensive. I can't afford this. And that's okay. Uh, there are people who choose a Samsung over an iPhone too. And that's a price decision. Who are they? <laughs> who are they? <laughs> I mean, and, and and that's okay. But you have to know. And if you're going into it and you know that you're the budget, like, you know, maybe your tour company is called Budget Tours, in which case you better be providing budget tours because you're competing on price. If you're going into it knowing that you're a luxury tour company, then again, you're competing on price, but in the opposite way. Um and maybe this is circling back to brand in that you have to know who you are. You have to know who you are. And if you know who you are, and then you know what your end goal is. And to me, the end goal is two things. Number one, I want to know at the beginning of the year, I figure out what salary I'm going to have by the end of the year. And number two, I want to figure out my net profitability for the end of the year. 
And then I back out those two numbers. And if you back out those two numbers, then you should know how much total revenue you need to make, right? So then once you know the total amount of revenue that you need to make, then you figure out the total number of guests that you need to have. And then you figure out what your price needs to be based on those guests. So to me, this is all just math. This is like, pricing is so easy. It's just math. I mean, it's math and self-confidence. Um, and these are things that we learned back when we were in eighth grade. We're editing this part out because people are terrified of pricing. <laughs> Did you also, with your with your brand coach, not only discover who you are, but who your customer was? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's a big part of, of the whole branding process is um, delving deep into your customer. And, um, you know, and one of the big things that we found were that our customers were not necessarily budget minded. Um, they were people coming in for a vacation and they weren't necessarily looking to spend the most money. They weren't maybe staying at the Four Seasons, but they were probably staying at a Hilton or a Marriott. Um, and I think that hotels are a really good um, way to tell where your market is. Um, our customers were not staying at the, uh, you know, at the Super 8 Motel. They were staying at the Sheraton, the Ritz, the Hilton. Um, we, had a, we had a few on the upper end who were staying at the Ritz and the Four Seasons, but the bulk of them were kind of staying in that, what I would call like a four tier, four star range. And so if they're staying in a four star range, then we need to be providing a four star experience. Um, we're not going to be hitting, if they're staying in a five star hotel, then we need to be hitting that five star experience and pricing accordingly. Does that mean you just talked to your guests and said, where are you staying? Because yeah. that's brilliant market research. That tells yeah, absolutely. so much. Uh, so much. We, <laughs> a whole other conversation. Um, but um, we have a very uh, streamlined communication methodology. So we're currently using um, uh, Tour App. Tour App? Tour app, tour go. Yeah, tour app go. Yes, <laughs> that's the name of it. Yes, um, and it's an automated, um, it's an automated text messaging system. But uh, if you don't have the budget for that, y'all, like seriously, for six years, we were just hand texting every person on our on our tour before the tour, and we were providing information, which was like, hey. Reminder, meeting spot is here, here's this. And very frequently, and we would say, do you need any info on how to get to the start location? This is a really simple question, but you can gain so much information from this one question. If you ask somebody, do you need information on how to get to our start point? Then the very first question you have to ask them is, where are you staying? And they say, I'm staying at the Hilton. And then you say, well, do you want to take the Metro or do you want to take Uber? If they want to take the Metro, then you know that they, they're more budget conscious. If they want to take Uber, then they're not budget conscious. If they're renting a car, then you know that budget's not an issue for them. You can learn so much information just with this one series of questions. And then you just document that. And there you go. You know who your customers are. <laughs> 